This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Lanick. Dr. Peter Bradley is the Director of Public Health Development at Public Health Wales. He is committed to improving and protecting the population's health by reducing health inequalities, maintaining excellent public health services, and making health information and evidence accessible and relevant. Peter has worked in public health for many years in the UK and abroad. For five years, he worked as a senior medical advisor for the Norwegian government, advising on clinical policy, health technology assessment, and he was the acting head of the Norwegian equivalent to the National Institutes of Clinical Excellence. He has a strong commitment to using evidence and promoting its use in practice. He has a 10-year history of international and national teaching on evidence-based practice, and he completed his PhD focusing on medical education. I spoke with Peter in Wales. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Yeah, it's great. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Peter, tell me where it is you're sitting today. I can't remember exactly. I'm sitting in Cardiff, in the, in the lovely uh, city of Cardiff, uh, in Wales. Cardiff, Wales. You know, we're, we're speaking right now. It's, it's March 12th. What is the weather like in Cardiff? Well, it's uh, dry, and we were always grateful for that uh, in Wales. And it's it's getting warmer, so we see signs of spring. <laughs> That's excellent, Peter. You work for Public Health Wales. Could you start off by telling us about your position and and about what that organization does? Yes, um, uh, Public Health Wales is a dedicated uh, organisation which has the responsibility for population health in Wales. And we cover a range of things, everything from those uh, incidents, uh, health protection outbreaks, right through to uh, supporting policy, looking at how we can improve the health of the population, giving advice to the health service. So very, very broad remit. Peter, I wanted to just also make sure that we mentioned that you work for Public Health Wales, but this interview is about you and uh, your personal opinions and that it doesn't reflect Public Health Wales. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. It's not reflecting the opinions of Public Health Wales. They're all my own opinions. Okay, excellent. One of the words that I, or the phrases that I, I really focused on when I was doing my background research was health inequality in Wales. Can you tell me what's the definition of health inequality in Wales and, and why is that such a, a big important thing? Yeah, um, there's a very complex uh, technical definition, which is basically around the times of life when people die, depending on where they grow up and particularly their income level, and also the amount of healthy years that they have. Um, and it's the gap that we see between those on higher incomes and lower incomes. And that's often uh, partly geographically defined. And that's a real core goal for us in, in Wales to, to see that gap narrowing. And this is a problem that we see all over the world. How would that differ or what's unique about health inequalities in Wales as opposed to you know, your, your close neighbors or maybe you know, other places of the world that most people wouldn't even think would be associated with Wales? Well, it is a common problem, very much so. I think not unique to Wales, but in common uh, perhaps with uh, Scotland particularly, we see that there are uh, some communities which have generations of people on very, very low income. So if you like, we have real pockets of, of where people are struggling for a long time. And after a while, their expectations lowered too. So they don't expect to be living long and healthy lives. So we have a particular challenge, I think, in supporting those communities. And, and that maybe is a, a real focus for Wales. Hmm. How did you get started in this? I've, I've seen your 
very brief, let's call it your online resume here at the Public Health Wells site. You started as a doctor, but was it always your intention and focus to be a, a public servant, or how did you get get into where you are today? Well, because I was trained as a doctor in uh, the United Kingdom, um, my obvious intention was to become a doctor and in England, uh, where I was training, that means working for the National Health Service. So in a sense, yes, I did uh, always think that would be what I would do. However, I don't think I ever planned to do public health. <laughs> and certainly I remember <laughs> when I was a, a medical student being totally bored by the lectures on public health. So maybe that's a bit of an interesting story. And I had many uh, kind of choices about which speciality I might go for. Um, and I ended up not making my mind up very well and doing general practice, you know, general medicine uh, um, in the community, uh, which is a very, very big part of the English uh the health service. But I just saw repeated problems coming through the door that had a root in people's um, economics, in their, in their social setting. And I guess that set me off on a, a track of discovery of how could I actually stop these things happening? And in short, that was the trigger that brought me into public health. I also know that you spent some time working in Norway, working for the Norwegian government. Was that a, a seminal experience as well, or did that give you a different perspective? Absolutely, it did. And uh, my, my job there was fairly technical. So the technical side of public health is to really, really understand research and data and use it really well so that decisions are, are really well informed. And in essence, that was my um my role in Norway, advising on on things like which uh, pharmaceuticals should be available and uh, uh, decisions like that. But my life in Norway was the thing that really influenced me. And very, very interesting to live in a country where income equality is much more pronounced and where an emphasis is really put upon excellent provision in the early years for children. So, for example, you have absolutely fantastic quality uh, preschool care. And I lived there, brought my children up there. And in many respects, I consider that to be real public health. When we go back to talking about this uh, health inequality gap, one way you would solve it is by focusing on issues like that, which don't really rely on professionals like me at all. What? So who does it, who does it rely on? Well, it relies on political decision making, uh, essentially. And uh, political decision making isn't down to the individual politicians either. It's it's about a collective view on what is uh, the way you want your country to go. So if you like, it's down to the Norwegians or the inhabitants of any country, uh, in part at least, to, to make a decision about how the resources are distributed. And obviously, Norway is in a very fortunate position in terms of its overall economy. So, yes, that's a great help to them. But I do find it very interesting that almost intuitively they take a very uh, positive stance to public health. You just said a few seconds ago that public health is really data driven. It's more about what can you have available for people and, and understanding the data that, that drives that. What's the most surprising discovery or surprising piece of knowledge that you've come across over the last you know, 10 years here where you said, wow, that this is a real factor that ultimately plays out in, in making sure that inequality is reduced or that health outcomes are improved? I think uh, occasionally facts such as the, had we 
continued on the trajectory that we had for childhood obesity in the UK, it would have meant that the present generation of children had a shorter lifespan than their parents. Facts like that really hit you. I think other ones such as in the, in the UK, when we look at healthy life expectancy between those more well-off and those less well-off, we're talking about a gap of 18 or 19 years. So the difference of becoming ill in your late 50s or, uh, you know, sort of in your mid-70s. So amazing differences. Mm, yeah, that's a huge difference. Is there any sort of Freakonomics kind of data that you, uh, you've come across where, you know, it turns out that if you actually do have a pint a day, you know, your life expectancy is increased? Yeah, we know that if you follow four uh, lifestyle areas, and I'm going to try and list them, and I'll probably get them uh, miss one up. But <laughs> you know, moderation in alcohol, physical activity, don't smoke, and you know have a, a healthy diet, that you're probably likely to live 14 years longer. Wow, that's that's. Yeah. I, I love that research. So yeah. yeah, tell us about a day in the life of the executive director of public health development. How much of your time is spent? administering? How much time of yours is spent, you know, fundraising? How much time is spent you know, looking at data? Okay. I, uh, very fortunately in Wales, spend very little time fundraising because uh, the Welsh government funds our activities. So that's, that's one thing. I spend a lot of time in trying to support other people to do their work. So quite a lot of meetings, but those meetings take very different forms. So uh, we're on the one hand, trying to support people uh, actually get through the barriers that inevitably occur when they're trying to do some really great things. Um, I spend a fair bit of time talking to people overseas. So working internationally so that we really share the best ideas that we have. Our work is quite challenging because it demands on the one hand has been quite rational looking at data, but on the other hand, we have to manage quite a lot of politics, both internally and externally. So that internal uh, collaborate, that international collaboration is really important. So at the moment I've uh, spent in the last week, I don't know, I've had about six or seven calls to Australia and New Zealand as an example, because we're working with those at the moment. And unfortunately, I would say as well, there is quite a bit of bureaucracy that goes with the job. So I do have to argue my case very strongly in a number of formal meetings. So it goes from, um, you know, very informal meetings, sometimes going out to communities, seeing what they've got to say right up to those very formal meetings and, and sometimes uh, very inspiring international uh, conversations. Mm. Within that process, what would you say is your biggest challenge right now or that you faced over the past several years? Is it, you've, you've said that funding comes from the Welsh government, but is it making your case? Is it implementing specific programs? Is it seeing follow through? What's, what's your, your biggest challenge? I think that um, I would say in Wales that the administration, the government is actually very positive about the general messages behind public health. But inevitably, in the days that we now live in, I think one of our biggest challenges is um, getting uh, resources to do what we need to do. And obviously, the problems are quite big. You're trying to reach the whole population. And the actual logistics of, of managing to do things on a large enough scale that they actually really do impact on the population's health. I'd say that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have. So what's very important for us is working with loads and loads of different partners because it's only when we join together with our kind of common aims that we may call public health, another body may call well-being, that we just want to make the Wales a great place. That's really 
both very exciting but also a big challenge because obviously you need quite a bit of capacity to make those things happen. Give us an example of a, of a partnership you're excited about right now. Yeah, um, well, I mentioned the Australian partnership, and I think that's probably a good one. So we know that uh, uh, Healthy Together Victoria are doing an incredible amount of work in their local system and have really worked out how to inspire all sorts of different sectors in their states of Victoria. So we're working with them and trying to, and also New Zealand, to try to actually work out how we can motivate our countries, get people really behind the notion that they they want to have a a great uh, and healthy life. And there's an awful lot of ideas that we can share around that. Do you get the opportunity to go and, and travel to other countries as a part of this, or is it mostly phone work? It's mostly phone work. Occasionally, I do get to go somewhere, and I think uh, it's it's normally uh, a kind of a one-off visit, so we can actually say hello to each other, and and after that, we do it on the phone because uh, you know obviously we've got to think about how money is spent. But uh, those visits are really inspirational, and I did carrying on the theme. I had the opportunity to go to Australia, and New Zealand last year, and uh, see in detail some of the work that was done so i remember a project from new zealand about pacific islanders and how they had addressed some of the problems about low self-esteem and and uh, self-harm in in that group and it was a really inspiring thing to see and sometimes that face-to-face contact means a lot I'm lucky enough to have worked in the South Pacific uh, myself. Was there any correlations that you could bring, for example, from from those programs with South 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 Pacific Islanders to the the populations you affect in Wales? Yeah, absolutely. Because in many respects, that visit uh, uh, has inspired us to write actually a lot of our organisational plan. And also, along with other examples, the way that you would go about engaging people in in issues, people that feel a bit out of the mainstream, people that don't feel that they're able to influence what's going on around them, uh, the principles can be used. And, and I mentioned before that we have some, some areas of Wales where people have chronic unemployment that maybe have gone on for one or two generations and there again issues of self-esteem are very relevant and we could use an awful lot of the techniques that I saw there in in the areas uh, which are struggling here in Wales. Do you ever find yourself wishing that you could still be more hands-on as you know that doctor that you started sort of as a practitioner or are, are you pretty excited about being sort of the head of the bureaucracy at this stage? Yeah, of course I do. I really do <laughs> miss it. And, uh, you know, you have your days when you just think, oh, why am I doing this? I do occasionally um, have great one-to-one contact and it comes in various forms. It can be teaching. I really enjoy teaching. Um, I do coach quite a lot of people. If you like people, I can see you've got enormous potential and, and it's great to support them. And with the communities too. So uh, in my last job, actually, as an example, I had a really good run of uh, community uh, development kind of activities. One was with the Bangladeshi community. And it was absolutely fascinating and personally enriching, really, to understand their perspective 
and to see them do things in such a different way and do things really effectively with incredibly small amounts of money. So we started off with really small health projects and ended up with them uh, running a great big uh, healthy restaurant scheme right across the the town of, of Ipswich, which is in the east of England, and really from very, very little at all. So, yeah, you do have that personal connection and, yeah, you've got to have some of that, uh, I think. You just made it, or we're speaking about a very specific example of working with the Pakistani community. How else is your work implemented? You mentioned earlier that capacity is one of your biggest constraints. First, how big is Public Health Wales? So what sort of capacity do you have is in terms of human resources? But then how do you get your, your message out and how do you implement your programs? Is it through partners or... Yeah, in the part that I, I'm talking about, uh, which doesn't include the uh, the outbreak management and that kind of thing, we're, we're talking about uh, 400 to 500 staff. And we have people working in the local patches across Wales. Uh, and then we have some people working centrally. But I think it is really, really important uh, that we work together and get our messages out through partners. Because one thing that we're really sure about it is that a lot of our messages aren't necessarily hurt mm. by uh, you know an austere sometimes seen public body whereas if we work through partners it's much more likely that people can engage with us now, I think we're on a journey uh, at the moment where we're really trying to expand that cooperation between the different agencies in Wales and I think it's fair to say that we don't feel we are doing enough of that at the moment but what we are really fortunate in is we have great networks with many of our workplaces Many of our schools, um, about 99% of the schools are signed up to programs in Wales. So we have these setting-based arrangements which allow us to get our messages out to the audiences that we're trying to reach. Speaking of that, how has is technology affecting your work? It almost seems like a too broad brush of a question, but when I'm thinking about getting a message out about public health to a large population, not even 10 years ago, you know, it was, it was posters, it was at bus, bus stops, it was, you know, billboards. Are you tweeting now? Are you, you know, are you on everybody's handheld or are those kinds of strategies in place? Yeah, uh, and increasingly so. And I think, you know, similar to most countries, there's a financial incentive for us to use technology wisely. Um, so personally, yes, I tweet. I think it's a, it's a great mechanism. And, and I like to feel that if I send things out, I'm not filling up people's inboxes and emails. And it certainly put me in connection with people in quite surprising ways. People will pick up a tweet and say, oh, I didn't know you were working on that. And that's really good, too. It increases the visibility for me, which is uh, a challenge because I'm working right across the nation, which takes five hours to go from uh, north to south. So it's a way of making up for the time that I don't have with cups of coffee with people. In our services, we're increasingly using technology. So certainly texting and Internet-based services are the way that some people want to access our services. And particularly when we look at younger generations, that's the case. Um, but I'm anticipating that that's going to be uh, an even bigger shift in the future. And there are other aspects like the data side, where, um, you know, there's the real potential of the of big data, to use the jargon, all this information that we have. And I think in the next couple of years, I can see public health really beginning to um, use those data sources in addition to the traditional ones that we have, such as uh, looking at uh, death rates and things like that. You unfortunately just stole my next question about what what does the next five years hold. Is there any uh, particular 
advancement or pivot or partnership that you're looking forward to creating over the next five years that you just think is going to be a game changer? I think in terms of uh, things that really could change, uh, I suspect that uh, genomics and the genetic side is a really interesting thing for us. We're learning more and more about Already now we use this in terms of the outbreak management, but as well as that, it's telling us about what kind of treatments can be tailored for individuals, uh, what kind of lifestyle advice is likely to work. So I think that one is, is, is really one to watch. I think the use of technology, as I mentioned, is going to become bigger and bigger in terms of service access and information and, and data. But the big thing for us is a bit of a, of a simple thing, and that is just the use of of communities, the assets that are in those communities, and really beginning to focus on what it is that truly influences the choices that people make in their lives around their lifestyle. So if you like, if you're surrounded by takeaway places, you are going to eat takeaways. And what can we do to facilitate the choices that people want to make in their lives uh, and not put it all down to them as individuals, but actually think a little bit about how we can organize our society so it makes it easier for us. Hmm. A couple more questions. Going back to your particular career path, you started out as a doctor. I think we're all pretty familiar with how you know arduous a process that is. Then you started working for the, the Norwegian government, and, and now you find yourself with Public Health Wales. How did you find those jobs? Were these jobs that you applied for and, and sort of went through an application process? Was it something where you know it came from your network where somebody appointed you or, or recommended you? How did that work out? Okay, well, mostly uh, it's been going through application processes uh, and interesting perhaps why you make the choices you do and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to tell you other than it was intuition I think the one exception was Norway uh, they had a bit of a, a lack of skills in public health and as part of my training scheme in in public health I had a secondment and it just so happens my, my wife did a degree in Norwegian uh, so it was an obvious place to go so I went and uh, when I'd finished my secondment there, I, I had discussions about whether they would ever, um, whether I would ever be interested in going back. And, and they did advertise a job through all the proper processes, uh, but I think they uh, timed it so that I was able to apply. So otherwise, everything was just, you know, the routine uh, kind of uh, stranger going into the interview process and uh, trying your best. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, I love to hear that particular story because some of our guests on the show, you know, it's been, I don't want to say it's been inside jobs, right? Because there's nothing nefarious about it, but so many people find those jobs that are not advertised, right? All, that's that's where most of the juicy jobs are. And it's 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 also refreshing to hear someone actually just applied and, you know, found themselves in a, in a great position. Yeah. And I have a really strong opinion on it, actually, that you, uh, you should never really go for the jobs that uh, are not followed by a proper process. And I didn't in Norway either. I think in the end of the day, you were always subject to challenge. And actually, to know that you've won a fair competition is great. And I really would advise everyone to do that. Oh, that, that's a fantastic piece of advice. One question that I like to ask everyone is that, you know, we, we it's very easy for us to talk about our successes and talk about what we're doing right is there a time in the recent history or even not, not so recent history where either Public Health Wales or you and your career really fell on your face, really failed? And could you tell us that story and, 
and maybe how you managed to either turn it around or learn from it or, you know, are now doing things differently? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, there's uh, there's challenges all the time and it's not an easy uh, job in some respects because you almost accept failure as part of your trajectory. And, and I, so it's almost a difficult question for me to answer. But almost every initiative that I've ever tried to do which involves uh, substantial change meets considerable setbacks. And very often to the point that you actually think to yourself, well, this is never going to work. But you have to keep on going. And I guess the one thing that I've learned is that um, – you need to persist. You really do need to persist and have a bit of grit, actually. Um, a part of that comes from having talked to a lot of people before you start your ideas going, because in so doing, you know that there is an awful lot of support and your ideas are thought through. So I'll give an example, maybe from my previous job, I started to uh, try to do some work uh, with all these different sectors around improving the population's health. And um, it was very, very difficult to get things started. People were very cynical about it. Um, people didn't feel that it, it really fitted in with the processes that they wanted to monitor things. And it required an awful lot of time and effort for me to actually get things going to get a few people around me who were enthusiastic about it and to constantly meet the enormous uh, challenge of uh, capacity to answer people's queries and I'd say that's a very very common thing and eventually that endeavor was pretty successful and people began to claim it as their own and I always feel that that's the point that I've really succeeded is when uh, people forget that it had anything to do with me so I would just say accept failure and let go. Um, it's getting the job done that matters. <laughs> That's fantastic. My final question, Peter, is one that I ask every guest here and we end every interview with. And that's most of our audience is made up of people who are either coming out of a master's degree, looking to get into a career of service, a career in either the international development or aid world or some other service-driven industry, or people transitioning from other career sectors uh, into public public service. Do you have a core piece of advice that you would give to these individuals about how to create sustainability and satisfaction in a career like this? Yeah, and I think it's uh, um, a bit of a cliche, but I think it's a good one, <laughs> which is... <laughs> we like cliches. Think about... Think about being 85 and think about what you actually want to to have achieved and really think about the values that you're bringing to this. If you're going to come and work for the public sector, there's a reason for that. You'll want to make a difference in some way. And I think as far as you can, being clear about that really helps you. So when you meet the incredible frustrations that public service can sometimes bring, you will know why you're coming to work. That is a great guide. And if you ultimately decide that your present job isn't fulfilling what you want to achieve in the long term, you kind of have an answer that you need to go and find somewhere that is. Peter, thank you so very much for your time today. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 